Hey, what's up? What's up, everybody? This is Armand Lee, and thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Quarterly Report. I'll get to telling you guys what's on deck for this show in a second, but first, I want to take some time out to thank each and every one of you, whether you've been rocking with me since the day one or since last week. The show has continued to grow, and I'm really, really excited and happy and appreciative for all of you all who listen each week. So, because of the growth, there's more ways than ever to listen to the show. So here's the rundown of that. You guys already know about iTunes. All you got to do is go to iTunes, type in the quarterly report. That's quarterly spelled Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E. Once you see the icon, all you have to do is click, subscribe, and you're good. But if you don't mind, please rate the show. Leave me some reviews. Let me know what you like or what you don't like or things that you want to see in the future episodes. Any and all critiques are welcome. All you have to do is rate and review. But... But if that's not enough, if you don't like iTunes, if you're not down with Apple, it's all good. You can go to the show's website now. It's at thequarterlyreport.lipson.com. Again, that's the quarterly report, quarterly spelled Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E dot Lipson, L-I-B-S-Y-N.com. That's the show's webpage now. So you got the entire catalog of every single episode all 18 editions of the show you can leave comments there if you would like and you can link into the show so that you always know each thursday when a new one is up it'll let you know there and now we're on soundcloud as well so all you soundcloud listeners when you're listening to your soundcloud rappers you know what i'm saying you can also listen to the quarterly report again all you have to do is search the show's name you'll see the icon and boom those shows or soundcloud only has the more recent episodes but we're working to get you all 18 but for right now all the newer episodes are on soundcloud so try to make it more convenient for all of you all to listen and to share the show with your friends but that's enough about that let's focus on what's coming up in the next 60 minutes my cousin Sadiq, a lot of y'all are really really fans of that he's gonna be back on the show again he's a sports promoter he's a sports analyst he's gonna have his own show and i want to say in a few weeks so we'll definitely let you know about that we're going to rap about John Wall. We're going to rap about Kyrie Irving. And I watched Power this weekend, and I got a rack of questions. So he's going to give me the lowdown in regards to that. Also, Adrian Broner, he was he was at it again this past weekend. We're going to talk about the fight, but more so the fighter, because we all can understand a person, a player, or a fighter who doesn't realize their full potential. And Adrian Broner is the perfect example of that. But we're going to get to that in a little bit later. But first, our week's first topic. First quarter. There was absolutely no shortage of just ridiculous behavior in the sporting world this past week. And this is supposed to be, you know, the the dog days of the sports calendar. You know what I mean? Like, this is supposed to be the time when there is nothing going on. But this week, it was almost a race to see who could say the dumbest thing, who can overreact to the most benign event you know what i mean we had all of these things going on in a seven day span but yes one man one person was able to trump all of that with his foolish just dumb absent-minded quote but let me set the table for you right this week we saw people overreact to Kyrie irving and steph curry having fun at a wedding i've never i've never seen the take Right, someone craft a take about what 
you know, what a dance meant in regards to LeBron James's legacy. You know, people people had that take. People had the take that Kyrie somehow has an overinflated, you know, worth of himself, value of himself because he took part in a dance. I was amazed at how much ridiculous content came from just a 20-second video at a wedding. But nope, that wasn't the dumbest thing that happened this week. We had Governor Chris Christie with nachos in hand get all up in the fan's face, invading his personal space, staring at him with this crazy-looking shirt tucked into his huge pants as if that's going to be intimidating, right? We had that at a baseball game. Chris Christie's a big man. And I'm not, I'm not even going to, you know, that's not my thing. I'm not going to fat shame anybody, whatever. You know, he's successful. You want to live like that? Go ahead, do your thing. But the fact that his big body kind of eclipsed the sun at a day game in Chicago while Chris Christie is trying to intimidate this dude holding some nachos. <laughs> I mean, that, that is the level of silly, like that, that level of just ridiculous behavior wasn't even what I'm talking about. We also had LeVar Ball once again saying something completely stupid. You know, as someone who at first, at first rocked with what he was doing in, in terms of having his son, saying his son is better than Steph Curry just so he can get his son's attention. And then seeing the level of attention that his son got to the point where you would think that he's the number one overall draft pick. So at first, initially, on that level of just, you know, him doing what he's doing and pushing his son the way he wanted, his son needed to be pushed, I suppose. I was cool with that. But now this is like the third or fourth thing that LeVar Ball has said or done that's like, yo, this dude, he's a jerk. He's a dickhead. Okay, this is the second sexist remark he had. He got a, he got a, a woman official ejected from the game. And the only reason we know it was a woman official because he made it a point to make everyone know it was a woman's official. So, like, that was awful. But not even LeVar Ball tops this week's list of just complete and utter absurd comments. This, this was earlier this week from NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell when he answered questions from a fan at the New, Jer New York Jets, you know, training camp. They had a recent study, you guys may know. Uh, I want to say it was 116 former football players uh, and 115 of them, uh, former NFL players, mind you. Uh, I want to say they had, oh, I'm sorry, 111 brains donated by former NFL players. 110 of them came back with CTE. Now, again, CTE is, is like the boogeyman in terms of the NFL. People, uh, it's a brain, obviously a brain trauma. Um I don't remember what the what it stands for. I, I'm blanking right there. But if you know, if you saw the movie Concussion or if you've paid any amount of attention over the last few years to the NFL, you know, this is like a lot of people are worried, you know what I mean? Because here's, here's how awful we are. We're not worried that we're playing a game that is causing people to literally lose their minds. We're worried that this, a result of the game, could possibly impact the game that we love so much right we love this game so much that we don't even care that this game is literally letting people lose their minds but i'm not even going to get in, i'm not going to dive into that 
This is what the commissioner said in response to a study that showed 110 out of 111's don't brains donated by former NFL players had CTE. This is what he said. The average NFL player lives five years longer than you. So their lifespan is actually longer and healthier. And I think because of all the advancements, including the medical care, that number is going to even increase for them. So <laughs> I think it's, I think it's fair to say that the commissioner is somehow saying that because you play in the NFL, your life, you as a human, you become healthier. That's the only, that's the only way you can hear that quote in response to a study about CTE. And that's his response. The only way you can listen to that is to, is to under the, pre, the impression that he's, he's responding to that question by saying that playing in the NFL somehow makes you healthier which is on its face, maybe the dumbest thing I have ever heard from a, from the head of a league. Think about that. There is a study that has just come out and we can, we can, there's a legitimate argument about how, about the sample, like how they came up with the sample of 111 players because those players had expressed, I mean, they donated their brains. So they expressed some concern that they did have CTE, but regardless, right? I mean, that does taint the sample, obviously. But the fact that 110 of the 111 guys who had some suspicion about their brain actually had it, think about that. I mean, that's frightening. And the way that the commissioner, the commissioner, not some guy, not some strength, you know, coach, you know, not some scout, or a former player, the damn commissioner comes out and says, yeah, but you know what? NFL players, they live five years longer. They're healthier. Bro, what are you talking about? So I, I was I was, I was, was tempted to do like, you know, do an angry man for him. Just Roger Goodell, you forever need to sit your ass down. But nah, I'm, I'm done with that. You know what I mean? I'm done with Roger Goodell. It's similar to what I was talking about with LeVar Ball a few weeks ago. The more you feed into it with energy, you know, the more that energy kind of just builds builds that person up. You know what I'm saying? The, the only way to combat someone that you really can't stand is just to ignore them, right? Indifference, empathy, not empathy, apathy. That's the only way you can do it. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not even directing this to, to Roger Goodell. But the fact that he felt comfortable enough to say that, we have to we have to take it upon ourselves to really draw the line because he clearly felt comfortable to say something that stupid in front of reporters that he knew would go out to all of the fans of the NFL, the, the legion of fans that the NFL has at its disposal. And the only way he would feel comfortable saying that dumb that foolish of a statement is because that we won't ridicule him. We need to shame him so much for saying that foolishness, that stupidity for allowing that to come out of his mouth. We need to shame him to such a degree that generations from now, people will use Goodell as an adjective, right? Damn folk. You, they, he, he carried you so much. You got Goodell, you know, you man, Slim, you got Goodell. We got to make it a point to just 
shame him to no end. Because if we don't, if we're just going to continue to accept that, like he feels so comfortable in our, I guess, ignorance, our stupidity, our, our, you know, obedience, our, our sheer devotion to the sport that he can get in front of a camera and say anything like, sure. NFL players may live five years longer than the average, you know, Per, I don't know if it's person, American. I don't know what he meant when he said you, right? But let's say it's just the average American. Here's the thing. People who have money tend to live longer. You know, people who have health care. And I know health care is like this huge buzzword. So I'm not going to get into it. I don't care where you, you know, lean ideology, right? Where your ideologies lean. Like, I don't care. But one thing that we all can agree is that people who have health care, they tend to live longer. People who have money tend to live longer. And, and people who work out regularly, like football players, with the exception of offensive linemen, just go up to, go up to a, def- like, they're all just this massive muscle. All of them. You know what I mean? They're just fit people because they have to. That's their job. So, yeah, when you exercise that regular that regularly you're going to be somewhat healthy but we're not talking about you know the risk of heart attack and the risk of can't like if if they spot cancer on a football player guess what they've got they're insured to a degree that they can get the best medicine money can buy if you were working your behind off at the construction site or if you're a receptionist or if you are you know what i mean a, a courier for the postal service you may not, you're not going to have the resources that football players have for all these other things. So the idea that, well, football players live five years longer, I mean, okay. But compare football players to other wealthy jobs, like other millionaires or people who make half a million dollars. Like the guys who make the practice squad make more than the average American make. And if you make more money than the average American, you make more money than the average human. So the idea that somehow playing football is healthier, Right. Just because you're in the NFL, not because of you, because of the fact you have money, not because you have health insurance, but because you play football. The idea that he would say that just reeks of arrogance because he he can't be that dumb to say something that dumb. And when smart people say dumb things, there's usually an agenda behind it. And this idea now, because the the, the problem I have isn't with Roger Goodell. It's with these foolish people, these kind of like minions that just pop up talking about the war on football. What war? What war on football is anyone looking at? Football dominates the weekend in this country. Saturdays and Sundays, college football, Sundays professional football. How is that a war? Look how much money that they rake in each year. If a war looks like that, Sign me up for the next war. You know what I mean? This war on football. They have moved the goalposts. They framed the discussion so well that just providing data, information, makes people so defensive that it must be a war. And here's the crazy thing. The people who run up to defend the quote-unquote shield are the people who should be the most upset at the NFL. They're players from an older generation who the NFL went out of their way to lie to in regards to the health and the safety of the NFL, right? 
And look, we all know there is a certain level of danger when it comes to playing football. I mean, hell, boxing is my second favorite sport. The problem is, imagine if boxing tried to act like, yeah, man, you know, the sport's not that bad. It's not that dangerous. Hey, man, you can, CTE is kind of new. We don't know how dangerous the sport is. If you are a mixed martial artist or if you are a boxer, they pull no punches. They, there's nobody saying, hey, you know, we got we to gotta get more studies. We don't know if this CTE thing, if, if playing this sport that every doctor will tell you is like getting into several car crashes time and time again. Imagine if somebody, if Dana White was like, hey, we don't know how dangerous UFC is. <laughs> and we don't know yet. Boxing and UFC, they, they own it. And that makes it easier to just ride with it. It's like, okay, look, yeah, we know it's dangerous. And if you don't like it, that's cool. But we're not going to try to, we're not tiptoeing around the subject. We embrace it. And you can make the choice. But because football wants to be cloaked in this morale, right, this this upstanding, you know, we, we are football. We, we do things the right way. We protect the shield and all this stupidity that they now have convinced so many other people that doctors, that studies, that just basic common sense is like, hey, this data, we don't know, we, we can't we can't really trust this. You know, it's a war on football, guys. This latest study, don't don't just buy into it because there's so much we don't know. So here's the thing. They talk about there's so much that we don't know. Yet every time a new doctor releases a new study, they're the first ones to dismiss it. <laughs> I mean, oh, I don't understand. Like, I personally have started to, you know, change how I view football. I mean, last year I only watched a handful of games. And it's not just because of CTE. It's a lot of things. It was the domestic violence. It was Roger Goodell and his just buffoonery. But it's a lot of things that kind of have turned me off to football. But I know I'm in the 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 minority in when it comes to sporting fans. Like, football is doing well. It's doing very well. And so is college football. So why are they lying? Why why would Roger Goodell be so willing to just look like a buffoon? To look like a clown? To say something that stupid when there is no risk? Unless there's still stuff that we don't know that they do. Right? It doesn't make any sense. There's no risk. How many people are going to stop watching football this year because of CTE? You know, and I'm not judging you. Again, my second favorite sport is boxing. And God knows that CTE has to be even higher in combat sports than it is in football. But they're not lying about it. Why is the NFL lying? Why are people so ready to try to withhold information from the public? Again, when smart people do stupid things, it's usually because there's an agenda. So we all got to ask ourselves, what is football's agenda and why do they keep trying to hold information away from us? Roger Goodell, you an asshole, man. You are a fool and you are stupid. But, man, you know how to make money. And the reason Roger Goodell and the NFL continue to make money is because they keep on betting on the fans, us, all of us, accepting it. And I don't know about y'all, but, man, I can't stand for that. All right, man, that's the first quarter this week. I went a little bit long, but, man, I had to get that stuff off my chest. I can't stand being played for a fool, man. I feel like Roger Goodell and the NFL owners, they're doing that. But that was the first quarter. The first quarter is in the books. 
Make sure you follow me on Twitter. I'm at Armon, A-R-M-O-N underscore Lee, L-E-E. And please follow the show as well. We're at Quarterly, Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E show. All right, so we're done with the gridiron for the time being, but now we're going to move to the hardwood. It's our second story this week. Second quarter. Now it's time for Analytics 101. As you all know already, I am a huge proponent of advanced stats when it comes to the NBA specifically. And I know over time, you know, people have made analytics and all these advanced data into this big, scary, ugly word when it comes to NBA circles. But one of the reasons why I started the podcast was in part, at least in a small degree, at some point I would be able to kind of, I don't want to say lecture, you know what I mean? But kind of break down some of these advanced stats in a way that, you know, isn't a lecture and that can be retained and that, you know what I mean? Because I feel the main the most important thing when it comes to these stats, like their importance are to help not only GMs and front office execs kind of evaluate players, but to, I don't know, you know, add to the discourse when it comes to just fans like myself talk. I know if, if you do subscribe to advanced stats, there is no doubt that there's been a time when you're talking to your homies or you're at the, the barbershop or you're on the text chain and you start rapping and start talking about a player and you know before you say what you want to say everybody's going to laugh you out the room everybody's going to laugh you out the barbershop the whole nine and for me you know one of those guys is you know the marcus cousins the marcus cousins has a great stat line if you just look at the raw totals right Kyrie irving he's in the news he is another guy who puts up amazing points and scores rather efficiently, but there's something lacking. DeMarcus Cousins has never won 39 games in a season, I want to say. Kyrie Irving couldn't win until he got LeBron. You know what I mean? So points per game, and I talked about this in a previous episode, when you look at PPG as a way to evaluate players, he's just missing the boat because there are a lot of guys who score a lot of points. There are a lot of guys who get a lot of rebounds, but they can't win. Sharif Abdul-Rahim famously used to be an all-star and get all these uh, all these points and rebounds when he was the only guy in Vancouver, but he couldn't win. And then traveled when he went to Atlanta, but he couldn't win. And then all of a sudden it dawned on everybody, okay, he's just a looter. He's just getting stats and doesn't care about wins or losses. Not that he doesn't care to win, but he's not a guy who produces, okay? Something that I always say, there is a difference between talent and productivity, and that is kind of like the, the the northern star for me when it comes to my quest on learning all these different analytics. And, you know, at least in my opinion, figuring out which ones are good and which ones aren't. So with that being stated, here is kind of my, you know, kind of um, guidelines or blueprints on some of the more famous or some of the more recognizable, you know, advanced stat- statistics or analytics, if you will. This week, we're going to be focused on probably the godfather of all advanced stats, PER. They call it the godfather because I want to say, at least to my knowledge, it's the first one, especially the first one on a high level, uh, to make its way. And it's done a good job, I guess, opening people's minds to the idea that points per game and rebounds per game 
they're not the end all be all and neither are rings you know what i'm saying count the rings that argument or the eyeball test like you know we we have all these prim primitive ways of evaluating talent and ultimately they all kind of come up short and per while significant also comes up short but only because it's outed, outdated. All right, so PER was created and developed by John Hollinger. A lot of you guys know him. He used to work on ESPN. Now he's actually in the Memphis Grizzlies front office. So there is a lot to be said for, you know, a guy coming up with his own stat and parlaying that into an NBA executive position. You got to congratulate the man. One of the beautiful things, again, it's one of like the first advanced stats that ever happened. And, you know, got to give him credit. He saw, you know, that the way we were evaluating players, it just was wrong. And he created something that to this day, you know, people still use. Unfortunately, people haven't realized that PER hasn't evolved with the times, right? So think about it like this, like in the late 80s and mid 80s, when people first started buying IBM computers for their homes, you know, it was revolutionary. You know what I mean? It was, it was the big, the big new thing. But imagine if you still had and still use your 1987, 89 IBM, you know, personal computer now, right? You, you can, you can appreciate the significance and the importance of something without with all also while realizing, okay, we need to continue to update this thing. And that's where PER falls flat. PER stands for player efficiency rating. One of the biggest things I have, one of my biggest pet peeves when it comes to advanced stats are people will use statistics, use these new metrics, and not really have an idea of what they mean, what they stand for. So if you are going to jump in the pool and, and put your toe in to the advanced statistics kind of revolution that they, they call what's going on now, make sure you ask yourself, like, what is this telling me? What is this metric telling me? Because if you don't know what you're, t what, what you're learning about, what you're reading about or trying to understand, then it becomes mindless. And that's one of the flaws of PER. You would think when you hear PER, player efficiency rating, this metric is telling you how efficient a player is. But that's the problem, right? PER, and we've, we found this out over the years, the equation, and I'm not going to bore you with the actual equation. You can find that out on your own if you want to. But the equation rewards volume shooters and when i say volume shooters i mean guys who who shoot a lot you know um obviously in the nba a field goal is either worth two or three points so you can score 40 points and that doesn't even account free throw attempts you know what i mean so a player could score 40 points taking like 18 shots and that would be incredibly efficient you could also score 40 points shooting the ball 32 times and obviously that's not there's a lot of offensive possessions that don't come up with points if you're shooting 32 times and only scoring 40 points. However, PER still values the player who scores 40 points on 32 shots, right? It, it doesn't it doesn't take away from that player. And I'm, I'm giving you a hypothetical, but the more you shoot, it doesn't it doesn't reflect poorly on an inefficient shooter, a volume shooter, what we call them. One of the reasons why PER looks favorably on guys like Allen Iverson, Kobe Bryant, Carmelo Anthony and DeMarcus Cousins. Like, these guys aren't really efficient scorers, but they have kind of worked the system of PER at least, and they can still get really high PER uh, values. So that's kind of the deal with when it comes to PER. 
it was it's significant it's really important because it's kind of the first it was the one that broke through but it's time has come and gone there are a lot of other advanced statistics and we'll get to those in weeks ahead and i'll break down at least in my opinion the ones i really like the ones that i feel like are kind of doing a little are shortchanging uh we the fans and um front office execs um but per it's important like not just to bash it because it is an important statistic and it's still to this day even though it's outdated probably the most famous and the most successful um i guess analytic when it comes to the nba circle so per is flawed it's it rewards volume shooting which doesn't really uh it can't really equate how efficient a player is if it doesn't take that into consideration but that being said we salute per because if not for that we wouldn't be where we are today so that is this week's edition of analytics 101 all right so you guys heard the horn that means the first half is over and done with Thanks for rocking with me. Before we get to halftime, make sure you follow the show on Twitter. We're at Quarterly, Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E Show. Also, we're now on SoundCloud. So for all you SoundCloud listeners, you can now listen to the podcast. All you have to do is search the Quarterly Report. Again, that's Quarterly, spelled Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E. They have the most recent episodes up right now. So we're trying to make things as convenient and as easy for you and your friends and family to follow the show. So I really so I really love the support and thank you so much. We're going to try to make these even more easier and accessible for you all. All right, so first half is done. It's time for halftime. And again, if you listen to the show, you know, I love a lot of things in this world. The Knicks, you know, potato salad, <laughs> and of course, my beautiful baby girl, right? She is about to actually turn 7 at the end of the month. And as she's grown, her love for sports has grown as well, especially her love for Bill Walton and his funny-ass quotes. Take a listen. It's time now for... Bill Walter's Words of Wisdom. When I think of Boris Diaw, I think of Beethoven in the age of the Romantics. Shaq's arrogance is an insult to people who think. <laughs> I believe in science and evolution. I've been to the Grand Canyon. That was... Bill Walter's Words of Wisdom. Let me tell you something. Like I, I enjoy doing the podcast. I enjoy all the, the segments, the little skits, Devil's Advocate, all the halftimes, all the things that if you've listened to the podcast, you know, you may be familiar with. But there isn't anything that I enjoy more than that. I don't know what would second place be because that segment with my little schnookums is far and away my favorite thing. I, I don't understand. Like, she wants to just run at the mic and just go and just fully and completely introduce herself to the entire world. But as her father, I know the planet Earth is not ready for that yet. She can't go just completely unfiltered. So, you know, I had to find a way to kind of, you know, slowly 
introduce my child to you all and let her be a part of it because man there's there's nothing like you a parent out there you know when you when your child starts to like take an interest in the things that you do and you can tell that they they're interested in as well man there's nothing much like it and my little snuckles boy i'm telling you i mean the attention that she gets like people will be like oh man was that your daughter on the show this week and man her face will light up man she is a ham 100 percent. but yeah man that's that's my little girl my princess reading bill walton quotes Yes, she was able to somehow say Boris D. Al easier than she was to say Shaq. I don't know. I don't know how that happened, but it's probably all those late Utah Jazz games I was watching because Rudy Gobert was on my fantasy team. But whatever. That's enough dad talk. I know y'all done hearing me talk about my daughter. Okay, halftime is over. We got two quarters left, but it's still going to be a family affair because now I'm about to talk with my cousin, promoter and NBA analyst, Sadiq Abdul. All right, it's our monthly chat with my cousin. You know, the only guest that I have that, you know, I love. Bill Simmons has Cousin Sal. I have Cousin Sadiq. Sadiq, what's going on, man? Hey, Cousin, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So these are supposed to be, you know, the dog days of summer, but it's been anything but uneventful the last few weeks. We're going to get to football in a second, but we're going to start with the basketball. And the biggest story, obviously, is Kyrie Irving, and I guess his dysfunction when it comes to LeBron James specifically and the Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, I haven't really talked to you too much about this, so I'm curious, how do you view Kyrie, uh, his trade demand, and the fact that he is tired of playing with not, not only playing in Cleveland, but it seems to be tired of playing alongside LeBron James? Okay. Uh, I look at it in a lot of different angles. First, I'm not too mad at Kyrie. Because, I mean, he's already been there six years. They've kind of accomplished almost everything you kind of can accomplish unless you're just, you know, winning it every year. Other than winning it every year, he's tired of being the sidekick. I mean, you see all these memes and little jokes online and stuff of Robin going to Batman. I mean, people get tired of being number two always, especially when you were drafted number one by the team when he wasn't even there. And don't get me wrong, LeBron's definitely the best player in the league and all, but it's to the point right now where Kyrie, he wants to spread his wings a little bit. And then the team caters to LeBron so much that it has to be annoying as the other star. You know, I mean, in, in a way, back in the day, Chicago didn't even cater to Jordan this much to the point where Jordan, he had to kind of demand that $30 million at the time, which, you know, that was crazy back then. Like today, this day and age, that would be $50 million for one year. Right. So, you know, Jordan Jordan demanded that 30 you know, and his Scotty was there. And it was, you know, so but LeBron, I mean, he has too much power on that team. You know, they, they basically the coach, the GM, like if, if Lou makes too many calls in a row that LeBron doesn't like, then LeBron has a problem with it. He's saying something to me, you know, and you get tired of that. Not only that, with Kyrie, he's still a young guy. People still don't realize, like, he's been in the league six years. You know, he did one year in college. He's only about 25 at the most, something like that. And after a while, you're just ready to, to do your own thing, trying to have your own team and just, I mean, it's just dysfunctional at this point. But, I mean, and he's the one that saved LeBron's legacy. I mean, that was a clutch shot that he hit. I mean, LeBron had the clutch block, but that shot, you know, it takes a lot of fortitude to make a shot go in with a few seconds left versus getting a block. Like, all you have to do with the block is just run hard and be athletic and just jump up, you know, because, you know, you're already good at pinning the ball. But making a shot like that, so I kind of feel where Kyrie's coming from. It's just, you know, everything LeBron did. Next year, they were already talking about LeBron maybe leaving and things like that. So, you know, where Kyrie's coming from, 
it's kind of like this is a good chance to maybe start over. Or, or Cleveland's not even talking to Kyrie about what he wants to do next year if LeBron leaves. So he just he was too much of a second, you know, second fiddle, too much of a second thought in, in his own eyes of how Cleveland, the, the organization, is treating him. I absolutely understand and agree with your point to an extent, and this is why I think this topic is so fascinating, right? Because on one hand, you're right. Kyrie is a star. When we'll debate and we'll discuss just how much of a star, how great of a player he is in a second, but Kyrie absolutely is one of the game's best players, especially offensively, right? And when you've had the success at such a short amount of time, right? He's been an all-star game MVP. He's hit the biggest shot in game seven. He's a type A personality. So at some point, right, he's going to want to, as you say, spread his wings. But the other side, the flip side of that is Kyrie has seen both sides, right? He saw what it was being the number one guy before LeBron, and he, he's, and he has seen what it's like playing off of an amazing basketball player, one of the greatest of all time. Um, it's not going – Kyrie has to know. He has to know, right? That it's not going to be as easy playing without LeBron than it has been these last three years, right? Yeah, I understand. See, that's the that's the one thing where Kyrie might not understand. It's not like he's playing with a Harden or he's playing with a Melo. Or he's playing with a ball dominant guy. Right. He's actually playing with somebody that wants to pass in the ball. If Kyrie goes off, like if you remember the greatest game that I think Kyrie ever had was a game against San Antonio where he just went off and had like fifty some points. LeBron was actually loving it. He was feeding him. And, you know, I mean, and, and if people really watch the game and know the game, LeBron actually doesn't want any pressure at all. If he can blow out every team and, and have players, so he wants to pass to the people that are going to make shots. And Kyrie is a great shot maker from almost every angle and everywhere on the court, up and unders, you know, shot 15 foot, everything. So LeBron wants to pass to him. But at this point, Kyrie, I don't know. It's something, it's something that we don't know, I, I think. Right, something that they just never bringing up that happened, you know. Because yeah. I mean, it's got to be it's got to be something a little more than just on court. And really, if I'm Cleveland, actually knowing that LeBron could possibly leave next year, I mean, what is Kyrie going to do? Sit out? If I'm Cleveland, I actually wouldn't even trade him. I mean, I'm gonna tell you like this: not naming any names. I mean, but we, you know, I have coworkers that I don't like. I mean, everybody has coworkers that you don't like. You're going right. to get on that court, and you can't bicker and be childish and get on the court and not play. I mean, after a while. Let's say LeBron does not like Kyrie, you know, at this point, or Kyrie doesn't like LeBron, but Kyrie's getting double, and LeBron has to be the open guy. You think he's just going to be like, oh, LeBron is by himself. I'm not going to pass it because I don't like him. No, he's going, to, he's going to make the basketball play because that's what he's used to his whole life. I promise you, growing up, where he grew up, from Jersey and everything, he's, it's people that Kyrie has played with that he does not like. He didn't, you know, at some point, but he still had to play with them, AAU, high school, anything. But that you know, you just came. Oh, I don't like this guy or something. But it's something that's deep down that we that they're not discussing that we do not know about. At least in my opinion, I mean, because it's got to be more than just on court. But if if it is on court, I mean, I understand. Like the take that he named that Kyrie would like to go if Cleveland, you know, grants that. I think he fits well in all those places. And that's an interesting point because Kyrie has these this list of teams that he would play for. But what people forget is that Kyrie doesn't have a no trade clause. He's got at the most two more years with the player option, I want to say, right? So um, the, the Cleveland, if they trade him, they don't have to trade him to where he wants to go. Again, he doesn't have a no trade clause. So if they decide to trade him, they can trade him wherever. They, they could actually ship him to Brooklyn if they wanted to. <laughs> like with 2017, this Brooklyn team right now is where the Raiders were back in the day with Randy Moss. Like that's where careers go to die. So if Cleveland wanted to be petty, 
and childish or anything like that, which the owner has been it before, you right. know, he could ship him to Brooklyn and get whatever Brooklyn wants to give up. And Brooklyn probably would give Cleveland everything for Kyrie. Right. So, I mean, they could be funny and do that, but, I mean, if they, if they grant him the, the four or five places that he named, you know, Miami, New York, San Ann, I forget the other one, Minnesota. Minnesota. If they grant him any of those places, which are all winning organizations right now currently, too, even if he gets to the Knicks, even though they've been kind of falling off without Phil there, and if Melo goes and Kyrie, just Kyrie and KP with, the, uh, you know, young Tim Hardaway Jr. off the contract, New York is actually going to be good. So if they ship him to any of those four contending type of teams, they're actually doing him a favor. Right. You know, and it's like, you know, so he's, it's nothing he can ever say bad about the organization if they ship him to one of those places. Once again, I'm joined now by Sadiq Abdul. He's a promoter and sports analyst. Um, so, you know, we, we've spent the time so far talking about Kyrie as it concerns his relationship with Cleveland and LeBron James. But it's clear Kyrie has, you know, big plans for himself. He wants to be the franchise player, cornerstone player. However, I'm not necessarily certain that Kyrie is good enough to be a franchise player, especially a franchise player on a successful team. Um, so, you know, we live in right outside DC, Largo, both of us. Um, locally, there's this big kind of, I don't know how much of a rivalry it is, um, especially nationwide, but here it's very much so between John Wall and Kyrie Irving. You know, they were back-to-back -back number one overall picks. They play the same position. One guy went to Kentucky. The other guy went to Duke. You know, all that type of stuff. Um, and we have seen that John Wall is a franchise player and can be a franchise player on a successful NBA team. I'm still not certain Kyrie can as the number one guy. Where do you rank or how do you view and assess Kyrie Irving as a franchise player and as it relates to you know, John Wall. Um, okay, so I'm comparing him to John. He's, he's actually nowhere near John, in my opinion. Right. He's a great scorer. Now, basketball is so many more aspects of just scoring and putting the ball in the hole, especially as being like the leader or, you know, the point guard of a team. Yeah. You know, Kyrie, he can do a lot of things with the ball in his hand, but making people better, Playing great defense, you know. I guess you know he's a little smaller than John so far. Like rebound, he's not that. But John is, in my opinion, I mean, he's way better than Kyrie. Yeah, I agree. But in this point in Kyrie's career, I think if you put him in the right system, uh, a little bit of freedom, making him feel good and stuff like that, I feel like he could actually lead a team to maybe right now, just the first year. I'm gonna just say first year. After a while, they get chemistry and go a little further. But especially staying in the East, he could take up Miami or New York. To the second round. Mm, I don't know about the second round. I could say I would say that, and then when you're saying that, I hate to say it because I'm I love Wall. You know that's my guy, but Wall has only been the second round also. So when you're saying that, I mean it's kind of like you know, I, I I don't know. Going into the seventh year, Kyrie is he's ready to win now. He's actually you know like like I stated before a couple minutes ago, he's hit a game winner in the championship game, the deciding game. So that's super clutch. You know, he's, you know, you learn these type of things, and then now he's taking advice from Kobe. You know, he's actually learned a lot of things from LeBron, so it's actually it's time for him to, to kind of get that torch and know how to win now because it's kind of like the same thing LeBron did years ago when LeBron had to learn how to win from uh, Dwayne Wade. So sometimes certain players or, or team, you know, you go through little stuff and it teaches you how to win. And I think Kyrie actually he's there, but he's not better than John. He's, I'm sorry, he's not. From a scoring perspective, uh, I think – we all would agree. Even John Wall's biggest fan, Kyrie, is a better 
basketball scorer than John Wall. I mean, Kyrie finishes at the rim better than I would say anybody in the league. And that doesn't even take for take into account how small he is. I mean, he's just as an amazing scorer. However, um, and you may note of it, you know, Kyrie doesn't make any player better. I mean, you look at Deion Waiters, for an example, right? He had his best season and he's not playing with Kyrie. Like it was the furthest he got from Kyrie this past season. He has a career year, whereas John specializes in making players better. And that's such a vital aspect of the game. You know, whether it's Nene or Jason Smith or Gortat or whomever, Trevor Ariza. I mean, John, you know, that's what he does. And that's what he does so well. So I don't even think, you know, Kyrie, again, he's a really good player. But I don't think he's even close to being the player. And we're talking about And the same thing like you just said with John. Honestly, John is out here getting people contracts. Like, since Bill has been – I know they want to keep – see, the thing is also, like the owner stated in the gym for the Wizards, they say, you know, they want to keep the core together, which is good. You know, our, our big three, I guess, if you want to call it, our big three core to be drafted. But right. John has John has made Porter better. He's helped Bradley get better. You know, Bill would have probably did it himself, but, you know, Wall sped it up a little bit. Right. Wall has got Nene still kept him illegal, kept him at least relevant enough. You know, Ariza got a contract because of Wall. You know, I mean, yes, Wall is making a lot of people better because he's actually, that, in a sense, he's still that true point guard. Him, him like CP and maybe Rondo, Rondo uh, right. are like the last of the few true true point guards. You know what I'm saying? Wall is integrating scoring into his game a little more now than, you know, a little jumper and everything of that nature. But he's, he's light years better than Kyrie. So, it's all about how you build a team. And I think Kyrie, he could lead a team now because going into the seventh year, he's not the Kyrie he was his first three years. Right. You see what I'm saying? His first three years, he couldn't get his team into the playoffs by himself, which Wall could do, and Kyrie couldn't. But now after Kyrie, like, getting to these championships with LeBron and stuff, he's learning how to win. Once again, it's our monthly visit with my cousin Sadiq Abdul. He's a promoter, sports analyst. Um, we talked about basketball for the first two topics, but we're going to get you out of here with this. Uh, football-related topic, which is a few weeks away uh, from the start of the season. It's crazy. It's creeping up on us. Um, you know, you bleed burgundy and gold. Pull no punches. Not going to hide that. Uh, and once again, you know, your team is in the news with Kirk Cousins. Um, as a fan, how do, how do you view the contract negotiations with Cousins and what would be your point? Like, what's the limit for you that you'd be willing for Washington to offer Kurt for a long-term deal? All right. Well, I look at Kurt like this. I personally, when we come into, we're talking about wins, like a winning quarterback. I don't have Kurt in my top fifteen in the league. Wow. Yes. Yes. I do. Yeah. As a winning quarterback. Now, when we talking, see, that's the thing. In this new day and age, everything gets screwed to where, where it's all about pretty little stats and things like that. So, yeah, stats, but I want substance instead of over style. You know, so I'm trying to get wins. So, I mean, I know the NFL turned to a passing league, so it's not the old school where the quarterback might only throw 18 times a game, and if he completes 13 of those 18, which were third downs, it keeps a drive going, but you run the ball. Those days are over. I understand this. But Kirk, he is – I mean, really, I could tell you how many plays that he's failed when we needed a game versus how many clutch plays he's made with or the game that we need. So I feel like Kurt is, he's really only a, a 19 million quarterback. 
where he wants this what? What do you, what he's asked for? Like basically twenty six twenty six million? <laughs> I think he's actually probably wants around twenty eight, but to be fair, a lot of the, the what he wants is because of the market. It is the market. I'm not mad at see that's the thing. I, okay, I'm not really mad at him for trying to get his money. Shoot, if he can get thirty eight, go get your money. You right. know, if that's if that's what they decide to give you, thirty eight, forty eight. But I'm actually backing my team on this one. Normally the Redskins do make mistakes, I think, with players or either in the past we've overpaid older players when they were you know, their prime is past them or, or stuff like that. So Kirk is still in his prime or he's gonna even get better. But see the NFL, the money of the NFL is different than the NBA. Like a nineteen million quarterback versus a twenty seven million quarterback, that eight million difference a year, that's almost like the way they pay these players, that's almost like fifteen players. Mm. You see what I mean? It's like 14, 15 players. I ain't saying they're going to be good players, but they could be special teams. Sometimes special yeah. teams win games. So you might have an unsung hero where it comes in and, and strips the ball on a, on a, you know, on a pun or anything like that. So you have guys that are playing hard with 15, you know, 8 million. If you can get 15 players for that, is Kurt worth that? That's what you got to look at. Is he elite enough that you can, you know, I don't think he overcomes, uh, like, Things that go wrong on, on the, in the game. I don't. Right. I don't feel like, you know, he had, he's the type of quarterback that needs a run game. You know, I feel like he's the type of quarterback that needs a defense. And if you need all these things, spend money on those things. So here's where I am on Kirk, and he's far surpassed what I thought he could be as a starting quarterback. Just, you know, three four years ago, um, he is a top quarterback, like a top, you know, ten to twelve quarterback. He's very talented. Um, when it comes to certain statistics, but he doesn't score touchdowns. And, you know, like you, you hinted at this a few moments ago, even the biggest Kirk Cousins supporter would tell you, like, the Washington hasn't won that many games. You know, these past two years have been amazing when it comes to, you know, passing yards. But over these past two years, whether they're, they've won 17 games, you know what I mean? Whether they're 17, 14, and 1. You know, that's not a lot of wins. 9 and 7, Kirk. Um, and Kirk Cousins' biggest supporters will tell you, like, okay, well, you can't blame the losses on Kirk because he doesn't have a good defense. And what I would say is, if you're saying that he can't be good enough to carry a poor defense, right, then you shouldn't pay him the way other quarterbacks who are good enough to carry good defense, obviously, i.e. Aaron Rodgers, um, Matt Ryan carried a bad defense to the Super Bowl. You know what I mean? Uh, ben Roethlisberger, etc. If you are saying that he's not good enough to win games despite a bad defense, well, then Thank you. That's there what you have it. Do. That's what I say. I could do 23. Right. But the way the money, the structure of the money and the contracts in the NFL is different. That That's $5 million different. That 23 to 28 is huge in the NFL. Especially when you have holes. Yeah, I don't want to become – yeah, exactly, when you have holes. That's the thing. We're not already – you know, uh, a good enough or dominant type of team where we could pay him and we'd be straight, oh, we're going to the Super Bowl now. No, we're not that team. We still have other places that we need to fill and fix. And see, my thing is I don't want to become the New Orleans Saints right. of late. Or I don't want to become the Falcons, I mean, uh, not Falcons, Flacco and the Ravens. Of right. Man, you know, where, where I mean, don't get me wrong, those two quarterbacks won the Super Bowl and they earned their money, so that's where they got the contract afterwards. See, I'm good with that. If that's the case. If Kurt wants to get the big contract or something, go win the Super Bowl and then get the money, and then we'll be sorry after that. We'll be 8-8 eight and eight like the Ravens and the, and, and the uh, Saints after that, you know, because we already won our Super Bowl. You can kind of, you know, but see, that's the thing. New Orleans yeah, can't – New Orleans can't – they're not able to go spend money on defense, which they need, because they're paying uh, Drew Brees so much. Right. 
Same, same thing with Flacco. He's getting paid so much, they can't even afford receivers. Who he has to throw the ball to. Yeah, and you know, the crazy thing is recent NFL history suggests you don't really need an elite quarterback to win. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of Russell Wilson. He's from Richmond. Shout out Southside Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> but um, when he won the Super Bowl, he wasn't an elite quarterback. He's much better now. But when they won, he wasn't elite. They had so much talent all around him that he didn't have to win the game himself. Same thing. People think, like, when you think of Tom Brady, obviously, he's either the best or one of the top three best football players of all time. But those first two Super Bowls that the Patriots won with him, it wasn't like Tom Brady was going out and winning the game. He was throwing all these yards. They they dumbed down the offense for him, and he has grown into this great player. Um, hell, Alex Smith. Alex Smith has played in a championship game. He goes to the divisional round regularly. Hell, Brock Osweiler. Brock Osweiler took a team to the, the divisional round this past playoffs. I tell people, oh, thank you. I tell people that all the time. Houston. If they had any type of quarterback last season, they might have beaten New England. They might have went to the Super Bowl. If just somebody with some limited, you know, like Brock Osweiler, oh, my goodness, he was horrible. But, yeah, and that's what I said. Like, I just I feel like you don't need elite quarterback. Really, if everybody we're naming as elite quarterback right now, their team's still on winning. I mean, other than Brady, yes, yes, of course. But I don't know. I feel like as, as a scam fan, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to get strapped with Kurt for the next five, six years where we still can't build our team. Nah, it makes perfect sense. You know, short-term game versus long-term game. And uh, what's the play? So it'll be very interesting to see what Washington does when it comes to, uh, I guess, the future of Kirk Cousins in D.C. Once again, that's my cousin, Sadiq Abdul. He's a promoter, analyst, and a regular guest on the Quarterly Report. Deke, thank you so much for joining me, man. And uh, we'll holler at you next month. Not a problem. Thanks for having me on. All right, so it's been a bit of a family affair for yours truly between halftime and the third quarter, but we're going to finish up strong as the sporting world gave us, you know, a pretty good life lesson this past weekend. Find out what I'm talking about in quarter number four. Fourth quarter. You guys know I love boxing, right? And last weekend, it was a it's pretty um big, big weekend for both combat sports, boxing and mixed martial arts as, you know, in the UFC, Daniel Cormier fought John Jones. Um, they've got, obviously, a really bitter rivalry. And then in boxing, there was a headline event um, between Adrian Broner and Mikey Garcia. And it, whether you're a boxing or mixed martial artist fan, I think we both or we all can agree with, you know, or relate to certain themes, no matter your favorite sport. Like, you can like hockey and you can still kind of understand something that happens in football with basketball with these larger scale items. You know what I mean? Uh, redemption. LeBron going to Cleveland. Whether you were an NBA fan or a Cavalier fan, we all understood like him winning a championship for Cleveland, coming back home. That kind of resonates on a level more so than just a basketball. Uh, perseverance. Tom Brady, after, you know, deflate gate, being suspended the first four games of last season, um, coming back, being down as many points as they were to the Falcons in the Super Bowl, and then still winning. Whether you like the Patriots, like Tom Brady, whether you like football, that type of perseverance, that type of stuff resonates with people, whether you're a sports fan or a, a fan of a particular team or not. And on the flip side, we all can relate to people not maximizing 
their full potential. And on Saturday, it kind of happened, you know, on both spectrums. You know what I mean? And look, I do not pretend to follow the UFC. So by no means am I an authority when it comes to UFC. But with John Jones and Daniel Cormier, those two guys and their rival rivalry specifically kind of transcended the sport. Like I don't have to follow the sport to really to to appreciate kind of the bitterness, the, the actual real rivalry between them two. Because in this day and age, the term rivalry is used all the time, but it's kind of manufactured. You know what I mean? It's processed. They genuinely don't like each other. Now, John Jones, and again, I'm not a UFC authority, you know, but all the people who I respect and know, many of them are, right? They love the sport and I read and follow them um, is by all regards, if not the greatest, you know, on the short list, top five greatest mixed martial artists in this kind of age, this era of the UFC, right? So when you when you see him, and then see kind of what he's been through. Self-inflicted wounds, mind you, right? He had the arrest. Uh, he was arrested. He he got popped for PED use. He swears that he didn't knowingly take anything. Um, he's he's fought like drug, like recreational drug abuse, cocaine. Um, the guy has all the talent in the world and the charisma. He's got everything, but he's his own worst enemy. And he's fighting Daniel Cormier, who, you know, is a talented fighter himself. But, you know, he's not nearly the fighter. He, he's just not blessed with the gifts that John Jones is. You know what I mean? He's not that tall. He's not that long. He's not that agile. I mean, Cormier is a big grappling guy. You know what I mean? By all accounts. And there is no doubt that Daniel Cormier has squeezed every inch of, like, talent. Every inch. Every drop. Imagine, like, if you have an orange. And you squeeze it to there is no more juice that can come out. That's what Cormier has done. He has maximized his his potential. Like, there is nothing else Daniel Cormier can do to make himself a better fighter. So imagine how sobering that is for the second time losing to John Jones, a guy that we all know, despite all the talents, despite all the blessings that he has and the work ethic, because I'm not going to sit here and say that John Jones doesn't try hard. But, I mean, in one of their back and forths a few weeks ago, he was like, I beat you already, and that was after me binging all weekend on cocaine. You know what I mean? So he clearly, I mean, he's bragging to this guy who has maximized his effort, everything that he could possibly be. I'm talking about Daniel Cormier now. He has done, you know, by the book, squeezed every drop of talent that he has and turned it into a champion. And then you hear John Jones, a guy who clearly isn't taking it that serious, brag about beating you after being coked up. And then this past weekend beat you even worse. You know what I mean? Like, imagine how sobering that has to be for Cormier. It's like, what what can I do? Because we all, what we tell our kids, hey, man, you try your hardest, you do your best, and you'll be able to achieve it. And, you know, as a parent, I understand that, and I believe it to a degree, but we all know as adults, that's not the case. That's not the truth. There are a lot of people who try hard. There are a lot of people who try hard, try harder, than the most successful people and they will never get a get a chance get the opportunity mind you to stand on the mountaintop so john jones god bless him because he's got the skill the the athleticism the the body everything to be such maybe the greatest ufc fighter of all time but to a much lesser degree and i'm not trying to say john jones is the ufc equivalent to adrian broner 
But Adrian Broner, in many instances, is kind of like John Jones, except for he's not as talented, right? And is not as gifted. And they obviously fight two different sports. Adrian Broner is a boxer. And Adrian Broner, so when, when you see John Jones and Cormier, on one side, you can kind of, you empathize with Cormier. Because it's like, man, no matter what you do, you can't, you, you just can't beat this guy, right? You cannot beat him. You're trying your best. And I don't think that he's trying his best and he still beats you. And he beats you worse this time than he did last time. Whereas Broner has all the physical tools to be an elite boxer. But you can, t it's clear, he does not care. Don't take my word for it. Listen, this is Saturday night after he lost to Mikey Garcia. Said it was a do or die fight, and unfortunately it didn't they come out. They said it's a do or die fight. If I fight tomorrow, then everybody in this motherfucker gonna still come see me, man. At the end of the day, listen, I'm still AB. I'm still about billions. I'm still the can, man. I'm still a fighting motherfucker, and anybody still can't get it. And if you want a rematch in California, we can do it. That's seconds after losing, losing a, a big fight. I mean, don't, again, don't take my word for it. That was Showtime's highest-rated boxing fight in 2017. Now, that may that it, it peaked at all, close to a million eyes when Broner and Mikey were fighting. It was a doubleheader fight on Showtime. I want to say nine o'clock on Saturday night. And again, that's going up against a pay-per-view, a UFC pay-per-view. So Broner, it's a huge fight. Mikey Garcia is an undefeated champion, and he looks to be. We'll talk about him a little bit later. Um, he looks to be like the real deal. And Broner had an opportunity. You know, he, had, he, he was given another opportunity to, to show the world, to realize his potential to being an elite prize fighter. But again, it's the same thing with him. Like you watch an Adrian Broner fight, especially against like top talent. And depending on how you view Chino, I'm sorry, how you view... Um, Marcos Maidana, I'm, I'm slipping into nicknames and I know a lot of you don't watch boxing, so forgive me, but a lot of you, if you, if depending on how you can, what you can view or what you consider Marcos Maidana, let's just say he's an elite fighter or he was, he's fought Maidana, he fought Porter and then this past Sean Porter and this past Saturday, he fought Mikey Garcia. He's lost in all three fights and all three fights play out the same. He starts off incredibly slow. He doesn't let his hands go. And then by the time he's so far down in points and the only thing left for him, the only chance he can win is by a knockout. He lets his hands go and he looks like a completely different fighter. And it's just frustrating because you, you can tell he has the gifts. He was given. He was blessed with so many physical tools. He's got punching power. He's got hand speed. And you heard the, you heard the clip and this doesn't have anything to do with the fighter he is, but he has the the charisma, the the magnetic appeal to draw people into him, right? He's a guy who isn't an, an elite fighter by any stretch of the imagination, but he's able to to generate close to a million views on on Showtime, had it going up against a UFC pay per view, headlined by one of the best, most popular fighters, right? Think about it, Showtime. They had the Anthony Joshua Vladimir Klitschko heavyweight battle that may be the greatest heavyweight, the best heavyweight fight I've seen as an adult. Like, honestly. They had Errol Spence versus Kell Brook just a few weeks after that. And that was one of the best welterweight fights that I had seen in a while. 
But none of those, none of those, you know, brought in the ratings that Broner Garcia did. So it speaks to what, there is something there with Adrian Broner, you know, and he's probably following the Floyd blueprint of make people hate you, but they do. You know, again, what we talked about earlier, he's, he has people disliking him, you know, there is no apathy. There is no indifference when it comes to Broner. Either you love him or you hate him. And the more people hate him than love him. But when you see him, the punching power, he doesn't let his hands go. He doesn't faint. He doesn't go to the body. He doesn't cut the ring off. He cheats. You know what I mean? He was given so much God-given ability that he doesn't put in the work. And you can see it because all these other fighters just outwork him and they're not as physically gifted as Broner is. And that type of stuff resonates whether you're a boxing fan or not because just like we could kind of empathize with Cormier being like man you tried your hardest and no matter how hard I try at my job I can never get that promotion the guy who's in the you know the guy who's chummy chummy with the you know the CEO of our company he always gets the bonuses and the raises right we all can, can relate to that no matter how hard you try you feel like you just can't grab that brass ring and Cormier tries his hardest just can't beat John Jones no matter what he does John Jones will always be better than him in mixed martial arts. Whereas Broner on the completely other end of the spectrum has all the gifts, all the talent in the world, but he just cheats, right? He doesn't, he doesn't try to fully, fully gravitate, like try to fully utilize his God given gifts. And he keeps on giving opportunity after opportunity. And you just look at it. It's like, man, I wish I had the head start that you had, right? You know, man, I wish I had the the family, the backing, the resources that you had. You you were able to pay your way through college and you don't have any student debt. And your dad was able to get you this great fortune, you know, this great job that paid six figures. And you just keep on, you know, shooting yourself in the foot. I wish I had that opportunity. Right. I wish I had your resources. Well, Adrian Broner has all of it, but he doesn't he doesn't put in the work. And that's kind of like the frustrating thing. And it was just to me, it was Beautiful how they both played out almost simultaneously on Saturday where you had one guy, Cormier, right, trying his damnedest to be the best but just can't get over the hill. And you got Broner who doesn't try nearly as much, has all the gifts in the world, but for whatever reason, it just doesn't relate. And that's kind of, especially in like individual sports, man, that, that, that kind of hits home because there's no one to blame. You can't blame your teammate for missing a shot. You can't blame your offensive line for not blocking. You can't blame your pitcher or your closer for blowing a lead. You can't blame your goalie for letting an easy one pass. It's all on you, whether it's golf or tennis or boxing or UFC, those individual sports. You got to look in the mirror. There's no other way to point the, the finger. And we all can relate. And it was just to me, as a boxing fan, seeing Broner and remembering how I used to think of him six, seven years ago, and I was like, man, this guy, he he's going to be the next one up. And just seeing that failed, you know, seeing him fail at realizing his potential, at one point it was sad, and now it's just like, man, you know, as adults, we are just a life, you know, of choices. And Broner's got to own the choices he's made. And that's easier to kind of to digest in comparison to Cormier, when you look at him, it's like, man, no matter, you made all the right choices. You fought the guy who's messed up on the biggest scale, right? You've seen it over and over again. And no matter how hard you try, man, you just can't, you can't do it. 
How sobering is that? And that's, to me, that's the beauty of sports, man. On one night, you can get the full spectrum, full spectrum of emotion, right? And it's a microcosm of life. It's hard, it's hard to put your finger on it. It's hard to understand it, man. Sometimes it's cruel, and, you know, sometimes it's poetic. All right, so that's the show. Oh, before I get out of here, like I said, we talked about Broner. He fought Mikey Garcia. Mikey Garcia had a little interesting nugget. He kind of sent out a challenge. You know, didn't didn't direct it to any person in particular, but I think we can decode it a little bit. Maybe at a 140 bout against Terrence Crawford or moving down to fight Sarah Lomachenko, who is fighting this Saturday on ESPN. So they're doing it again. ESPN, God bless them. Hopefully they can get a little bit better out of their production uh, than that Pacquiao fight because the fight itself will be much better. I, it won't be that long because Lomachenko is going to put uh, Miguel Mariaga to sleep, but it at least will be a, a more entertaining fight. You can absolutely, you can absolutely believe that we'll be touching on that fight on next week's show. But if you want to hear me or see my thoughts as the fight is going on, you can follow the show on Twitter. We're at quarterly Q U A R T E R L E E show. I will be live tweeting the fight. So make sure you follow me Saturday night to see my instant thoughts on the fight between Lomachenko and Mariaga. And make sure you follow me on Twitter as well. I'm at Armand, A-R-M-O-N underscore Lee, L-E-E. Remember, we're also on SoundCloud now. So all you got to do, all you SoundCloud listeners, search the Quarterly Report. Again, it's Quarterly, Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E. Search the show, see the icon, click on it, subscribe it, and you'll get all the newest episodes of the show. Again, thank you so much for rocking with me. I really appreciate all the new listeners. Until next Thursday, I'll see you again on the Quarterly Report.